Coming up. It's so important to surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you the truth, who are not necessarily your friends, somebody willing to speak truth to power. Today on In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we're talking to FJC Senior Education Specialist and frequent host of In Session, Dr. Michael Siegel. Michael is a presidential scholar and an expert on the hows and whys of presidential success and failure. Throughout his 33 years at the FJC, he's been applying his research on presidential leadership to benefit leaders in the judiciary. Michael is the author of The President as Leader, in which he explores a four-part leadership framework that applies to leaders in the White House and the courthouse. Michael received his PhD in political science from Tufts University and was an Eli Lilly Endowment postdoctoral teaching fellow at Purdue University. In addition to his work at the FJC, he's an award-winning adjunct professor at both American University and Johns Hopkins University, and he's published numerous professional journal articles on political science, leadership, and criminal justice. He's also been a tremendous colleague and leader in his own right, and all of us at the FJC will miss him when he retires this month. Our host for today's episode is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the FJC. Lori, take it away. Michael, this is an exciting opportunity for me to talk to you about leadership. Thanks so much for your willingness to swap seats. Well, Lori, it's a pleasure to talk to you about both of our favorite topics. Well, in your book, Michael, The President as Leader, it looks at and compares presidencies after Watergate. Why this time frame in particular? You know, I could actually draw from another one of the guests we had named Joseph Nye, who has a concept called contextual intelligence. You know, leadership always occurs in a particular context. And the context of the White House uh, has certainly shifted. What the founders wrote could no longer capture the full dynamics of the current office. Certainly the office that Richard Nixon left in 1974 was a very different office than Jimmy Carter inherited in 1977. Congress had become much more active in oversight. The judiciary had become more alert to constitutional infractions. The press was more attuned. People were more engaged. And we went from what Gerald Ford called the imperial presidency to what he called the imprecise presidency that Jimmy Carter inherited. And it seems like those forces have only accelerated over the decades since. Absolutely. Because whenever there's a crisis, there tends to be an elevation of presidential power, whether it's the war on communism, the war on terrorism, whatever. But once the crisis passes, Congress becomes more active in oversight. Okay, so I'd like to look at the the four-part framework that you really uh, structure your book around, um, and you, you analyze presidential success using this framework. Help us understand what the framework is and why it's a useful lens to use when assessing presidential leadership or, as you just referred to, presidential power. The idea for the framework, I borrowed from two men, two high-level executives who served in the Carter presidency. They wrote a book called Memorandum to the President, and in that book, they outlined four major areas where they felt Jimmy Carter had come up short as a leader. And I took those four areas because I thought they were fantastic, and I developed them further 
and that be, that becomes the basis of my analysis. So tell us what those four parts are, if you would. So the first is policy, which is vision. Vision, as we talk about a lot in our programs, is foundational to leadership. Why am I running for office? How do I want to lead the nation? How will I, my administration make a difference in the lives of U.S. citizens? How will I improve the status quo? What do I want my legacy to be? And whether you're the president of the United States or a chief judge, you could ask these questions. Second, how do I translate vision into reality? Whenever you try to translate vision into reality, you become political. I don't mean that in a partisan sense. I mean it. you have to exert influence. You have to be a political leader at that point. Because as Henry Kissinger once said, a vision without a plan of execution is nothing but hallucination. Okay, so here are the questions that I ask around that. How will I implement my vision? Whose help do I need? What influence strategies will I use? How will I negotiate? How many issues will I take on at one time? How will I continue to work even after setbacks? How will I exert control over my agenda? How will I prevent mission creep as well? I think you also use the word strategy, which is a, a word that I think resonates a little bit more in the judiciary. So is, is that fair to say that politics is, is sort of equal to strategy in that sense? It is. And the strategy has to be about the people and about the process. The third element is structure or management. How will I organize the White House? What management procedures will I use? Will I favor macro or micromanagement? How will I assure the alignment of my vision with all the people that are working for me, because it should, as Kuzis and Posner remind us, be a shared vision. And finally, how will I make decisions? How will I make and announce decisions? How will I create the conditions for good decision-making? How will I handle conflict among my staff? How will I use damage control when needed? And how will I finally measure success? So all of these things, all these four variables must be considered by the president, by a chief judge, by a clerk of court, by a chief probation officer. You've done a lot of work on presidential leadership. So I'd like to, to get an exceptional example from each of these variables from the, the presidents, if, if you would. So let, let's start with policy or vision. All presidents have successes and failures. And you'll see I'm drawing from a presidents of both parties. This is not at all partisan. So uh, as far as vision, I would take Bill Clinton. Clinton came into office to say, you know something? Democrats don't have to be antithetical to business. Democrats can look at other ways to solve problems. Democrats can become deficit hawks. And so this fundamentally challenged the Democratic Party. And actually, I believe, led to his success in getting elected. It also spilled over to Tony Blair, who very much governed the same way in England with, with the middle of kind of the middle course between left and right. As far as politics, I would choose Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan, who was an outsider and who really did not know the details of politics at all. He understood that as an outsider, he had to marry his ideologues who he brought with him from California. 
to political professionals in Washington. And so Reagan's blend of outsiders and insiders was the most creative blending of political talent in the White House in 50 years, according to David Gergen in his book, Eyewitness to Power. They did some very smart things. For every meeting he would have with a member of Congress, his staff would write out index cards. And the index cards would say things like, this member of Congress really wants to help you, but she's really concerned about the student loan program in Massachusetts, where she's from. When you meet with her, please talk about the student loan program. Now, an arrogant leader would say, I don't need those cards. But Reagan understood he knew what he didn't know, as Adam Grant recently told us, right? And he took these cards and he used them. And the members of Congress said, we don't agree with him, but he understands us and he's with us. And they ended up supporting him, actually, a large part of what he wanted. So it was this humility in admitting what he didn't know, relying on his professionals around him who were very qualified and being able to negotiate face to face with Congress all led to a tremendous success of his program in the first year. In terms of structure, I would use George W. H. W. Bush, Bush 41, who had a very professional operation. Many of the people in his White House had served in previous White Houses. They knew his strengths. They knew that he wasn't an ideologue. He didn't operate out of grand strategy. They supported his goals and they knew what they were doing because of their years of experience. So one of my personal really hopes for our country is that we will stop to disdain insiders and celebrate outsiders because we actually need insiders like George H.W. Bush, who had such great connections with almost every leader in the world that he could assemble a coalition against Saddam Hussein very quickly. And he could keep the Israelis out of the conflict because he knew their leaders personally, et cetera. Decision-making, I'm gonna use uh, Barack Obama and I'm gonna use the execution of Osama bin Laden as an example of very good decision-making. Uh, this was a very uh, tricky operation. There was a great possibility of failure. And so he assembled his team and they told Obama, we think we know where he is. And Obama said, that's great. How sure are you? And they said, well, we're not 100% sure. And Obama said, get more information and bring it back to me. About two weeks later, and they said, we have more information. We're pretty sure he's in this complex in Pakistan. And Obama said, how sure? And they said, 60% sure. He said, okay, let's get some more information. And so they worked some more and they finally got it up to about 70% sure. And he said at that point, okay, let's, let's start planning it. The Secretary of Defense expressed some hesitancy and Obama was very deliberate in listening to these concerns and giving them full voice and hearing from others. And finally he said, we're gonna do it. And um, he did it and it was, you know, a risk, a big risk, but he had the input of all his team and he had heard the dissenting views and he gave them a full airing and it was a very deliberative process 
and thank God it worked. I was struck by what you said at the outset of, of this answer, and, th- and that was that, you know, even though these four presidents had success in a, in a specific domain, they also had failures. And so it, it sounds like an individual, whether a president or a leader elsewhere, they need to up their game in all four domains to the extent possible to be maximally successful. And if, if they're derelict in, in one or more, it, it, it could, could be pretty detrimental to, to their leadership. I will also say that it's very hard to master all four and, and very few presidents have. So we have to, as followers, we have to give leaders some leeway for mistakes and problems. If we expect perfection, uh, we're never gonna find our leader. And they actually require different skills and different skill sets, which is perhaps why different presidents excel in different ones of them. And, and another thing that I was struck by is, uh, you spoke a lot about how these individual presidents surrounded themselves by people who, who may have had skills that they didn't have. So I think that's probably part of their success, even in the domains where they excel more naturally. It's so important to surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you the truth, who are not necessarily your friends. The president does not need a friend. He needs what Ira Shaliff, another one of our guests, called a courageous follower, somebody willing to speak truth to power, and somebody willing to tell the president his own weaknesses and his own blind spots. Very important. I'm curious how this framework, how these four variables of leadership apply in the judiciary, especially given that authority is more diffuse in the third branch than in the executive and and specifically the president. My favorite leadership quote from the third branch is, from former Chief Judge Merritt, who said, when they handed me the reins of power, nobody told me there was nothing attached. The Chief Judge has relatively little coercive power over anybody, especially his colleagues or her colleagues. However, a Chief Judge or a Chief Probation Officer or a Clerk of Court or a Circuit Executive, whoever serves in an executive position in the judiciary, I believe, needs to have a vision. Now, Some will tell you, well, we already have a vision, equal justice under law, but that's not enough because the question then is, well, what about your particular court? How is it going to serve equal justice? What what are its particular goals and purposes? Secondly, how am I going to implement my vision? Who am I going to rely on? I don't have all the answers. Let's say I'm a chief judge. I'm not an expert on security. I'm not an expert on IT. Can I be like Ronald Reagan, admit what I don't know, and gain the people around me who could help me? And of course, my unit executives are key in that regard. They know how the place works. They know how to persuade people. They know the influence tactics, the strategies, as you said. How am I going to structure the operation? What duties do I give my chief deputy? Do I allow full expression of opinions, as I said earlier? Do I respect the value of each member of my team? Do I select the right venue for an honest discussion? The chambers of the chief judge may not be the best place to get an honest dialogue, right? So what do I do as far as assuring a venue that I have heard everybody and that after the decision is made, I have everybody on board? You mentioned, you've mentioned a couple of times leaders surrounding themselves with the right people. 
Can you be any more specific about the kinds of people that court leaders should be looking for to surround themselves with based on what, you know, your study of leadership generally and specifically presidential leadership? Absolutely. Of course, Lori, the you could argue that presidents have an easier time because they get to select their people around them. And as sure. you know, the, the president chooses the whole top layer of the executive branch, not only the White House, whereas a chief judge or a clerk, for example, will inherit a lot of staff. And back to your earlier comment, really filled with a lot of uh, deep institutional knowledge in, in many cases. I think you really want to surround yourself with somebody who's confident in their in their abilities, somebody who's willing to speak truth to power, but do this with craft, with 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 um, acumen, if you will. I think somebody who is respected by others around them and their colleagues. I think somebody who's willing to work hard. People who are willing to challenge assumptions, who are willing to challenge the process, as who's the symposner would say. I think also people who have some sense of fun. You know, uh, we we work too hard, and life is short. And I think you want to have people who know how to have fun and creativity. You mentioned time. The president has at most four to eight years. You know, how does time impact leadership? Yeah, this is a great question and, and not thought about en- enough. So I think what a leader has to do is to say, okay, what's realistic? You need to limit your agenda. Now, now realize, of course, you don't have total control over your agenda. Uh, none of our court leaders imagine they'd be dealing with a pandemic, right? You know, presidents don't imagine they'll be dealing with, you know, the invasion of one country of another, whatever, whatever. But to the extent that you can control your agenda, you need to maintain control over your agenda and you need to maintain a limited number of objectives. My favorite anecdote on this, Lori, is from Jimmy Carter. One of the things he failed at was limiting his agenda. When his domestic policy advisor, Stuart Eisenstadt, they asked Carter, what are your goals? Essentially, what's your vision? Carter answered him alphabetically, A to Z. He had 26 goals. Wow. Abortion to Zaire. And then Eisenstadt said, because Eisenstadt understood, what's really important? And Carter said all of them. Well, there's no way a president is going to accomplish 26 things at the same time. It's impossible. Ronald Reagan had three objectives in his first year as president. Budget cuts, tax cuts, defense increases. That's it. Three as opposed to 26. So maybe somewhere in between is a good number, but it has to be a number. You can't have unlimited objectives. Your staff needs to know what's important to you, especially because they're going to help you do it. And so you need to get their buy-in. And and one of the things, again, to go back to Reagan just for a second, is that his staff very clearly understood what his goals were. They didn't need, you know, lectures. They 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 fundamentally intuited what he wanted done, and they and they understood it. And his uh, goals could have fit on an index card, which makes That's them right. more memorable. Um, and 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 you can focus on it. You mentioned in your book that some presidents have ruminated rather than take action. 
Others have been more delegators uh, rather than micromanagers. How can can we in the judiciary learn from these presidential styles and and, and what applicability is there to to our work? Again, I'm I'm sorry to be using so many Jimmy Carter examples, but it just comes to mind as as a micromanager, President Carter liked to be in control of everything, including the White House tennis courts. And he actually scheduled all the games. Now, you can imagine, you know, that's maybe not what a president should be doing. Like when I talked to a supervisor in the courts one time and they said, Michael, I'm spending 80 percent of my time on parking. Well, that seems like that seems like a bit much. And I know people in the judiciary don't like to be micromanaged. So I would say delegate where you can. And yet the opposite style, which which was Ronald Reagan style, which is macro management. That's the problem also, because then you lose sight of some of the details. And, and Reagan clearly did. He lost sight of the AIDS victims in this country, for example. Uh, he took his eye off the ball on Iran-Contra. There are many other examples of where macromanagement is perhaps just as bad a pathology as micromanagement. As far as rumination, you know, some presidents were very deliberative. I use the example of Obama, who was very deliberative, but also able to reconcile opposing views, I believe. Clinton was a, was a great ruminator, and some say he was too much of a ruminator because he always wanted to keep it open for more information, for more options. And then there's a guy who called himself a decider named George W. Bush. He was very, very decisive. But unfortunately, he was not always as attuned to the consequences of his decisions. And so there's, there's something to be said for taking your time, being decisive, but then following up and looking at what are the consequences of those decisions. How does a leader navigate the need to make decisions, encouraging dissent, you know, and, and how much of that input to, to gather and and then to be able to actually get to a point where they can make a decision. And, and then how do they, they handle those dissenters themselves? Yeah, that's an important question, Lori. Thank you. And, you know, number one, you have to, as I said earlier, you have to create the conditions for dissent to be possible. You know, some presidents are much better at this than others. It's funny because when W came into the White House, He told Bob Woodward, he said, uh, Woody, he gave him a nickname, of course. Woody, when people come into the Oval, they say, Mr. President, you're looking pretty good today. And he said, Woody, what I need is for people to come into the Oval and say, Mr. President, you're not looking so hot today. The Oval Office is an environment conducive to people agreeing with the president. Sure. There's so much history there. There's so much pressure that when the president has a has an idea, people are not inclined to say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You're in the Oval Office, right? Think of a judge's chambers. It may have the same effect. I really believe strongly in the importance of venue in, in setting the stage for allowing dissenting opinions to be voiced. Then you also have to look at what's the reaction to dissenting views. You know, one of the things that happens in groups, and we know this through the studies of groupthink, 
is that groups develop a consensus and they no longer want to hear dissenting opinions. And this happens in the courts also, okay? And one of the defense mechanisms a group uses is laughter. They just laugh at an idea. And so that's basically shutting the person down or making sarcastic remarks or something like that. And and that, that actually happened to John Kennedy when he was planning the Bay of Pigs. There was one dissenting voice, don't do it, it's stupid. And everybody else laughed at the person. And they did it. And it failed. So you want to not only encourage dissent, but actually reward dissent. Say, thank you. We hadn't looked at it that way. Thank you for that perspective. I really needed that. That takes strength of a leader. It takes humility. And then after you've heard all the dissent and you've surveyed all the people, including the quiet ones, by the way, because as we know, extroverts will say a lot more than introverts in a meeting anywhere, whether it's the White House or the courthouse, right? You got to be sure you hear from the introverts, even if you hear from them after the meeting. After you've heard from everybody, as you said, Lori, you have to then arrive at a decision and you have to take ownership of that decision and you have to strongly announce it and strongly back it. That doesn't mean you can never re-examine it, but you shouldn't be tentative and you shouldn't have a lot of caveats because this throws people off, I believe. These last 15 months or so, we've been in a pandemic, and uh, which, you know, I think by definition is, is a crisis. Um, I'm curious what court leaders can learn from those presidents who handled crises particularly well. One example I think of handling a crisis well was George W. Bush after 9-11, who did many, many things well in October of 2001, achieved the highest ever recorded popularity of an American president at 91%. And let me say to the court leaders out there, if you ever get 91% approval, do something. (laughs) Because you're never going to get it again, right? What did he do? Number one, he reassured the country, we are running the government, the government is fine, we're going to take care of this, we're going to apprehend these people who did it, the country is not falling apart, basically. So he reassured. Number two, he educated. He said, this is not a war against Islam. Islam is a peace-loving religion. We are at war with terrorists. And the other thing he educated the country about was this is going to be a long war. This is not a quick fix. We've got to be ready for maybe years of this kind of business. It was very important at the time to educate the country, to reassure the country, to also reach out and console the first responders and the families. And he showed a tremendous amount of compassion at this time. And uh, this was was very well done. So I, I wrote down a series of things that I think leaders need to do in crisis going beyond uh, 9-11. Stay focused on a vision. Limit your agenda. Focus your energy. Preserve your energy because you could get burnt out very easily. Surround yourself with good people. Let them shine. Compromise. Negotiate. Persuade. Again, work on good decision making and show compassion. I think the showing of compassion we saw really in droves during the pandemic. And we know that that people in the courts so appreciated the compassion of their leaders, 
uh, during this period. Absolutely. Michael, what are some other key takeaways from your book that we haven't covered that you think are important for court leaders to know? How are we going to maintain enthusiasm over time for a mission, which, which, which the implementation of which can be very frenetic and sort of mundane at times? But how are we going to re- maintain enthusiasm? How are we going to be cheerleaders for our people? Leadership is, is a very complicated art. I go back to James McGregor Burns, who said that leadership is one of the most observed and least understood phenomena on earth. Okay? It's, everybody has an opinion on leadership, but very few people truly understand it. And it's a lifetime project, I believe, to understand it and to perfect it. Well, speaking of a, a life's work, Michael, you've spent over three decades at the FJC now, and, and you've worked with just about every group possible, I think, during that time within the courts. And, you know, as you look back on court leaders, and you've worked with many of them over the years, those court leaders who've had the biggest impact, who who have exemplified leadership, albeit imperfectly, as, as we all are imperfect, what, what do they have in common? I wrote an article in the Western Legal History Journal about a chief judge that I greatly admired named Richard Chambers, who was chief judge of the Ninth Circuit for actually, I believe it was 17 years, believe it or not. And he was a tremendous visionary. He had a vision of justice as the judiciary as this very important you know, role in society and its edifices, its buildings should be commensurate with that importance and should encapsulate that importance. And he, he fought for courthouses and that was his vision and that was his passion. He had the heart of an architect, but he still had a passion for justice and for, you know, encapsulating justice, as I say, in beautiful buildings. Uh, I admire leaders who have a passion for an idea, for an ideal, and who get others inspired about that, who are able to bring others along with them, because you can't do it alone. As good as a leader is, you can never do it alone, and who infuses people with this with this passion and this enthusiasm, and who also understands that he or she needs help, that he or she is not perfect, that he or she isn't an expert on everything, that he or she has very qualified people around them that can help, and that also understand the absolute burden of execution, that it's so hard to get anything done, that it takes patience and persistence and there are going to be setbacks and complications, and nothing occurs easily. And you have to have a certain humility to understand that and a certain reality of that to translate vision into, into reality. It's very complicated. And so, and again, people who show compassion, chief judges, clerks, others who show compassion to their people, it is so much appreciated. So those would be just some some thoughts on that. Michael, as you as you are staring down retirement, <laughs> what else would you like court leaders to know? What would you say to them? You know, and, and I'm not the only one to say it really at all, but the country is counting on you. The country is counting on you to uphold the rule of law, and we all are counting on you, and you do such an amazing job under some difficult circumstances. Don't be defeated. Don't get. Don't get. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep strong. You will make mistakes, 
but you will also have great accomplishments. And I will be uh, closely watching and I will be with you. Michael, thank you so much, not just for this interview and all of your ideas and, and your thoughts today, but, but really for your tremendous service to the judiciary in your 33 plus years at the Federal Judicial Center. I, I've had the pleasure of working with you for almost 19 of those years, and I think I speak for all of us at the center and, and all those you've worked with throughout the courts when I say we're going to miss you very much, and we're so grateful to you for everything. Thank you, Laurie. It's been a mutual pleasure working with you and our team and the whole center. It's been truly an honor to, to be able to, to do this. I consider myself very lucky. Thank you very much. All the best. Thanks, Laurie, and thanks to our listening audience. If you'd like to hear another episode with Michael, listen to the FJC's Off Paper podcast, episode 19. To hear more episodes of this podcast, Visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap Podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter and directed and edited by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glushkova. Special thanks to Chris Murray. Thanks for listening. Until next time...